we're kind of moving from the historical, moving more to the theological. Uh, I'd mentioned actually last week that we were going to do, you know, you know the big picture uh, systematic theology of the Puritans. I, it's not true. Um, I thought that was going to be the case, but it's not. Um, I just realized we're studying more. There's some more content, some more historical um, context that I want to just maybe clarify. Maybe there are some gaps from last week. It's like, what really was going on here? So it'll be a little bit of review, but more so, I think, just clarifying anything that wasn't clear um, last week. So really, you know, the driving forces, you know, some of the driving principles behind uh, Puritanism. So if you're, like, waiting for the systematic biblical theology of the Puritans, that'll be next week. Um, you'll certainly get some of that this morning as well. Very first thing, I want to do this last week, but I didn't have enough time, and I wanted to get through all the timeline stuff. I want to do book recommendations. I'm a book guy, and you should be too. Um, if you're not. Um, some book recommendations. I want to go through this. Each week, actually, before I do that, each week I'm giving out a Puritan paperback, okay? Um, little books like this, okay? Puritan paperbacks published by Banner of Truth. These really, when Banner of Truth started in the 50s and 60s, I think late 50s, early 60s, um, this was one of the main things that they printed and really took off, okay? They have about 50 or 60 of these, uh, they're nice because they're small, although this is actually one of the bigger ones. This one's like 200 pages. Um, Puritan paperbacks. These are meant to be read, I would say, devotionally, okay? Um, you know, there's all kinds of various authors. This one's John Flavel, The Mystery of Providence. I gave out one by Thomas Goodwin last week. We'll have some ones by John Owen. Um, they're not meant to be read as like page turners, right? You know, maybe some of you guys, you read novels before you go to bed, and it's just like, they're just easy to read. That's not what these are, okay? Typically, these are abridged and made easier to read, but they're meant to be read, you know, 10 pages a day slowly where you're taking time, okay? Does that make sense? I, I gave one out to someone, and he was like, oh, man, I'm just going to plow through this in a couple hours. It was The Mortification of Sin by John Owen, which is one of my favorite books of all time. One of the most impactful. And I was like, yeah, no, that, that's not what you're supposed to do. Like, it's just, it's not going to resonate. It's not going to get the full depth. You're supposed to read a couple pages, chew on it, meditate on it, pray about it. Does that make sense? Okay. The other thing is this with the Puritans. Okay. I just have to say this. You guys are intelligent. You've gone to school. You know how to read. Okay. Sometimes people put down the Puritans because they're difficult. Okay. Don't do that. Okay. I'd rather, you know, a lot of them, they're made easier to read, but I would just say, take your time I'd rather someone give me a book and say, hey, this is going to be difficult, but it's worth it, okay? Typically, you know, like mining for gold, it's not an easy thing. If it was easy, everyone would be rich. Everyone would have gold, okay? It takes effort and work. It's the same thing with reading valuable books that will yield diamonds, okay? It's just, it takes work. I'd rather just know that rather than someone say, ah, you know, it's hard work. Eh, you don't need to read it. Like, that's kind of like, I don't know. To me, that's just insulting. Like, I don't know. Like, I'd rather, hey, it's going to be tough, but it's worth it. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm giving one of those out each week. I think that's the best way to get to know the Puritans is actually read what they said, okay? So I'm giving one of those each week. If you already get one, you probably ain't going to get another one, okay? So maybe you're like, ooh, this one sounds good, but I don't know. I'm waiting for next week, okay? Um, so this week, I'll give that out at the end, The Mystery of Providence, really good book. Some other ones, okay? If, you're, if this class piques your interest, it scratches that itch of like, ooh, this is fun. Uh, this is interesting. I could learn a lot from these guys. Let me give you a couple books, okay? The first one, Worldly Saints, okay? Worldly Saints by Leland Riken. Riken was a professor of English at Wheaton for a long time. I think this is the best and the most accessible introduction to Puritanism, okay? Uh, Worldly Saints by Leland Riken. What he does, and this is why I like it, 
is he, it's not really a secondary book where he's making his own opinions. It's just filled with quotes from the Puritans. He's trying to understand them in their own context, on their own terms. It's really accessible, and it's really valuable even for today. I mean, the way he breaks it up. You know, what were their views on work, money, family, preaching, church and worship, the Bible, education, social action. And then he, I like it too, because he goes to the end, learning from negative examples. What were some of the faults? You know, where did they mess up? And then the genius of Puritanism, what the Puritans did best. So this is probably the number one one that I would recommend. Um, Worldly Saints by Leland Riken. I'll skip this one. It's good, but you don't need it. The other one would be The Valley of Vision. Okay, how many of you guys have this book or have heard of it? Okay, one, two, a couple of people. Okay, The Valley of Vision is another really good place to start. Okay, this is a collection of edited and abridged prayers um, from a lot of Puritan guys. And he kind of, he bleeds over, like some of it is from Spurgeon. Spurgeon is not really historically a Puritan, but certainly follows in that vein. Um, this is a really, really good introduction. It's devotional, Okay. You, you know, you're reading your morning devotions, you spend time in prayer, pick up this and pray the prayers along with it. I think you'll read this and you'll realize, wow, my prayer life is pretty sad. And that's actually good. Um, it provokes you to pray more biblically and more heartfelt. Um, so those would be the top two I would recommend. Um, Worldly Saints by Leland Riken, and then The Valley of Vision by Arthur Bennett. He, again, collected all of those. If you want more books, I've got more books, okay? Um, But I'm not going to waste your time talking about books, okay? Rough structure of class, Um, right? We started last week, you know, these questions we're trying to answer in these 10 weeks. Last week, historical, looking more at that today, kind of moving into the theological. Um, I just say this, if you miss a week, these are recorded. They're going to be on the church website. They already are. Um, But I also have the slides and the notes, Um, And so if you miss a week or you want to refer it to someone, you can get all that information there. Um, So just want to make sure that's accessible to you. Also this, I didn't mention this last week. Please feel free to jump in and contribute, okay? If you've got questions, last week I was trying to, you know, move through. I I have a lot to say, and sometimes I don't get to everything, and that's okay. You know, it's my class. We'll get to it when we get to it. Um, If we don't, it's fine. Um, But I do like more classroom, more casual, laid back. If you've got questions, hey, that's not clear. Hey, this made me think about something. Please jump in, okay? I'm not going to bite. If it's a bad time or I need to finish a point, I'll just say, hang on just a second. We'll come back to that, okay? So, hey, we're all, we're all learning together, okay? We're looking at who are the Puritans, and then really the, the vast majority of this class I want to spend on that last point there. What can they contribute to your everyday walk with the Lord? So those are those two main points. Last week, I always like to do a little bit of review, review each week, bring us up to speed. We defined Puritanism poorly. I love the first one. Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. I mean, this is what the Puritans were, just, ah, you're having fun, and the only fun I have is just destroying your fun. Uh, That is not at all what they were. Um, Last one there, Puritanism, it damages the human soul, renders it hard and gloomy, deprives it of all sunshine and happiness, doom and gloom. They were miserable people, and we went, no, that's actually not true. Historically, Secular historians and, you know, Christian historians have realized actually uh, what we learned from historians in the 18th, 19th century in particular is just not accurate, okay? And so that's good. We're studying history better. We defined Puritanism better. Um, We'll go over this again, but I think this is a really helpful synthesis from Peter Lewis. All three, notice he's stressing the biblical aspect of it, biblical preaching. This is what they needed, what they saw as being lacking in the Church of England. Biblical preaching, the need for biblical personal piety. 
That's really just a fancy word for someone's spirituality, their walk with the Lord. They realized that people were not living lives of holiness and sanctification, as the Bible clearly uh, stated. And the need to restore biblical simplicity in the church's worship. And so um, those are some of the three needs. I'm going to do a brief just, I mean, if last week we did a jet tour through history, this is like light speed. You know, this is, we're just going to go really fast. You know, historically, bring us up to speed. Where, what are we even talking about? Well, in 1517... Martin Luther pretty much ignites the Protestant Reformation, a rediscovery of the biblical gospel, which had been shrouded in darkness by the Roman Catholic Church. He nails his 95 theses to uh, the church door in Wittenberg. Well, over in England, Henry, their church is Catholic. He's like, well, you know what? I want a new wife, and uh, I don't want to be Catholic anymore. And uh, I don't think his Protestantism was that devout, I'll just say. Uh, We talked about that last week. So he says, hey, we're no longer Catholic. We're going to be Protestant. So he leaves the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. England is now Protestant. You have the Bible finally in English for the first time. I mean, just think about that. Not having the Bible. I mean, you pretty much didn't have the Bible in the common tongue for about a thousand, you know, over a thousand years. I mean, just let that sink in for a little bit. I mean, we just take our Bibles for granted. We've got multiple Bibles in our own language, different translations. They didn't have a single one for over a thousand years. So it's a massive time of Reformation. People are preaching the gospel. Edward, his son, comes to the throne. He's a Protestant. He starts to do a lot of good things. Problem is he dies at 15. He's really young. His, I think it's his older sister, half-sister, Mary. This is Bloody Mary, maybe that you guys remember. She comes to the throne. She's a Catholic. She kills uh, over 300 Protestants. Um, The vast majority of them burned at the stake. And so it's a horrible time of persecution for the Puritans in England. But then Elizabeth comes to the throne. Mary dies, thankfully. Um, she only reigns for six years. Elizabeth comes to the throne. She's Protestant, but the Puritans aren't happy with her Protestantism. She's not Protestant enough. And this is really where the Puritan movement really takes on steam. They're trying to reform the Church of England, make it more biblical, okay? And there's a long struggle there. James comes to the throne, high promises here, man, we think everything's going to be good, and he actually is reformed theologically, but the church isn't as reformed as the Puritans want, and so he's a disappointment for uh, the Puritans. Charles I, he comes to the throne, he's a major disappointment. Um, He persecutes um, the Puritans, they enter into civil war, starting, I think, 1642, uh, the uh, Parliament, which is pretty much the side of the Puritans. Some, and this is hard to understand, but Puritans actually kind of fought on both sides. It's hard to understand, but you did have Christians killing other Christians, so I don't know how good that was. But, uh, I mean, very serious political uh, conflict there. The um, Parliament eventually wins out the Puritan cause, more or less. And Oliver Cromwell begins to reign. He's not the king. He's the Lord Protectorate of the realm. This is the time we call the Interregnum where England does not have a king. Puritanism really flourishes under Cromwell, but it also really starts to splinter up, okay? Uh, So there's a lot of freedom, but with that freedom actually comes a lot of division, okay? So this time of promise actually is a big disappointment um, for the Puritans. Cromwell dies, and Parliament doesn't know what else to do except go back to the monarchy, and uh, that does not go well. Um, So the king that they beheaded, Charles I, they're like, hey, let's just get his son to be the king. And that pretty much undoes everything that the Puritans had, had stood for. Um, kind of at this point, I want to make this point too. Puritanism really dies a slow death, okay? One of the central things about Puritanism that kept it going for over 100 years 
was that they were able to train their pastors at uh, Oxford and Cambridge. Okay? Those are like the two main divinity schools, we would say, in England. Well, you had to be a part of the Church of England, or yeah, you had to be a part of the Church of England once Charles came to the throne. Okay? So once he comes to the throne, he says, hey, if you want to go to seminary, let's just say, to study to be a pastor, you have to agree to everything I say about the church. So you can just, a lot of Puritans no longer go to school. They don't study to become pastors. And so that's kind of why you still have some older guys preaching, you know, John Owen, John Bunyan, stuff like that. But towards the end of, you know, the 1600s, especially you get in the early 1700s in England, Puritanism kind of withers away because they don't have a educated uh, clergy. Does that make sense? So it kind of fizzles away and kind of slow, uh, dies a slow death. And so we talked about that. 1662, he passes the Act of Uniformity. Uh, over 2,000 Puritan pastors leave their pulpits rather than bow, ta- bow down to uh, Charles and say, hey, you have to do exactly what I tell you to do. Okay? We went over this to establish context. Okay? We do this every time we study the Bible. What's the historical context going on? I mean, Mark's doing that in Exodus, right? Exodus begins with, and these are the names. Okay? Well, that's a continuation of the book of Genesis. So that's why Mark's giving us a couple sermons on Genesis to understand where we are. What are we even talking about? Okay? That's what we're doing here with the Puritans. It, was a, it wasn't really a formal movement, but they're trying to reform the Church of England. It fizzles away. Um, they knew conflict. They knew civil war. They knew, they knew death, suffering, um, plague. I mean, you had the bubonic plague, fire, hundreds of thousands of people dying. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have a lot we can learn from them. Um, so I wanted to, this morning, is what kind of guided the Puritans? Why did they do what they did? I mean, they went to war, okay? Like, you got to have some pretty strong convictions if you're going to go to war about something, okay? What really guided them? Why did they do what they did? Was it primary political? Is that what it was? Was it a political movement? Was it a social movement? Was it an ecclesiological movement, you know, church reform? It was all of those things, but I think at its heart, it was a biblical movement, okay? I think they had biblical convictions, right? You go back to Peter Lewis's definition. Notice, what, in every single point, what did they see? A need for what? Biblical. This needs to be more biblical. They were people of the book. And as such, I think as a church, Crossway, we're trying to be what? Biblical. We can learn a lot from them, right? We want to be biblical in all that we practice and believe and do. And so we can learn a lot from them. So what were these principles that guided their movement? Um, let me just jump in. Six principles that guided Puritanism. And there's only these six. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, these are, I took these from uh, David Hall. He's a, he's a secular guy, actually. He was a, he's an emeritus professor of church history, I think, at Harvard. If you know anything about Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all those schools are total whack. Um, when it comes to theology. But um, from a historical point of view, I actually think he has some good principles here. So I'm taking the main points from him, and I'm adding a lot to them. Okay, so just disclaimer, these points are not from me, but I think he's, I think he's doing a pretty good job here. Number one, principles that guided Puritanism. Number one, a critique of idolatry that encompassed the whole of Catholic worship. Critique of idolatry that encompassed the whole of Catholic worship. I mentioned this last week. This was central to the Puritan movement, okay? They did not like the Roman Catholics, okay? They did not like them at all, okay? They came to see the Roman Catholic Church as the embodiment of the Antichrist, okay? He was evil. The Roman Catholic Church had shrouded the gospel. They were preaching people a false gospel, which as Paul says in Galatians, if anyone preaches you another gospel, implying what? There actually is not another gospel. There's only one. And so the Puritans pick up on that, and they're like, hey, 
The Roman Catholic Church is damning millions of people to hell. This is serious. Does that make sense? I, that is, if you don't get that, you're not going to understand why they did what they did, okay? A massive critique of Roman Catholicism. They believed, and we would believe as a church, that it was a false church. It is not a true church, okay? I want to show you guys this picture from the, uh, from the 1570s. I get a kick out of this. You know how we have memes on social media, you know, where, like, you have captions and all that stuff? Memes didn't start, you know, just when the internet started. The original meme was a painting, okay? Uh, you know, so, you know, nowadays I can make a meme in like five minutes, maybe quicker or something like that. You know, this takes a little bit more time, uh, but they're still making memes, okay? What's going on here in this picture, okay? So remember, this is, this is painted, we actually don't know who painted this, but this is sometime in the 1570s, okay? Here is um, Henry on his deathbed, right? King Henry, here he is, he's dying. He's pointing to his son Edward right here, okay? He's saying, hey, you're next man up, okay? Now remember, historical context-wise, both these guys are dead. Elizabeth is on the throne, okay? Uh, but, you know, he's telling them, hey, you know, you need to do your job. You know, he starts reigning. He's nine years old. So he's not really doing much of anything. He's a nine-year-old, okay? So here's his, you know, his, what they would call his privy council. You know, here's his, you know, gray beards telling him what to do, right? Um, over here, you've got some Puritans. Can you guys see it, kind of? Uh, you've got some Puritans over here destroying um, Roman Catholic uh, symbols and images, iconoclasm. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but here's what I love about this picture. I find this hilarious. Uh, down here, I don't know if you guys can see this. You've got this dude here throwing a Bible. This is the Pope. He has thrown a Bible and hit the Pope in the back of the head. Okay? And you've got some Catholic monks over here. They're running away. Um, the Bible is opened up to... Um, what is it, First Peter? I wrote it down. Yeah, First Peter one twenty five. Uh, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And the Pope has on his shirt here, all flesh is grass. So basically, you know, what the guy is painting here is just, just like, Pope, you're nothing. You're passing away. You're dying. You're nothing. But the word of the Lord remains forever, right? And you've got, you know, feigned holiness over here, fake holiness, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, not real. Idolatry, superstition. Um, so I get, I, I don't know. I find that funny, like, Wow, this guy, the guy who painted this obviously did not like the Catholics, right? And really what's going on here historically is that um, Elizabeth, remember, is on the throne. Henry and Edward are dead. I think what's going on here is you have a Puritan saying, hey, Elizabeth, you need to finish the reform that your ancestors started. Okay? You need to get rid of the Catholic Church. Okay? Um, so, I don't know, I got a, a kick out of that. So I'll just leave that up there for you guys to marvel at for a little bit. Um, they wanted to get rid of everything associated with Roman Catholicism. I mentioned iconoclasm. This is where the Puritans went about tearing down, destroying much of the art, the works, uh, you know, figures, any type of symbols, anything like that that were tied to Roman Catholicism. And they did this for theological reasons, okay? They weren't nuts, like just like, oh, we just want to break everything down. I mean, this is Ten Commandments, right? This was their argument, right? You think of the second commandment. You guys know this. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Okay, well, the Catholics had a bunch of emblems and symbols and all this stuff, and that's out of the question. The Bible says we shouldn't have this, okay? So I would disagree with the Puritans on this, but you know how we have a cross in our church standing up? They would not like that. Get rid of it. Right? No images. That is idolatry. Um, and so they went through, did all this stuff. No more should the pastors wear the robes. You know how the Catholics were all dressed up. Don't do that. No more kneeling for the people to take communion. And this kind of gets up 
uh, to the point of matters indifferent. Okay, if you want to write that down, maybe matters indifferent. This was central also to the Puritan movement. Okay, look, the Bible doesn't say we have to kneel to take communion. Okay, it doesn't say we should kneel, stand, lay down, sit down, roll over. It doesn't say anything like that. Okay. The Bible also doesn't say that the pastors need to wear these specific type of garments, okay? It doesn't say that. It's up to the church to decide what they want to do, okay? That's what they would argue. But as soon as the church says, hey, you must do this one thing that isn't explicitly declared in Scripture, they didn't like that. You see what I'm saying there? As soon as the church started to say, hey, you have to wear this, where the Bible leaves that open, They didn't like that. Does that make sense? They're adding to the word of God at that point. So they did not like that. They only wanted to do what was explicitly said, stated in God's word. So done with Catholicism, done with the vestments, done for kneeling with communion. John Hooper, he was one of the martyrs burned at the stake um, under Mary. He was a pastor. He said this, every man in England knows that praying to the saints and kneeling before images is idolatry and instruments of the devil to lead men from the commandments of God. So get rid of the holy days right? Christians didn't like holidays, so I know you like Christmas. Sorry, they didn't like it, right? Done with this. No, we're not doing that. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. No more private baptisms. Don't make the the sign of the cross. Stop praying for dead people, okay? Stop doing all this Roman Catholic stuff. Does that make sense? They did not like what the Catholics were doing. They heavily critiqued uh, the Roman Catholic theology of the mass, right? You know, we call it communion. We're distancing ourselves from the Catholics because they believe every time Uh, that they perform the mass, that, uh, you know, the, the bread and the wine is literally the body and the blood of Christ, that we have to re-crucify and kill him to atone for sins. Well, the Puritans are reading the Bible, and they're saying, no, that is idolatry. That is a different gospel. Christ has died once and for all. And so they move away from that This was central to the Puritan movement. You can't understand it uh, without it. Desire to reformulate the church to be completely done with Roman Catholicism. I need to move on. This is a good quote from James Cole. He was just a, he was not a pastor. He was just a Puritan guy. Writing in 1634, he's writing to his friend, Nehemiah Wallington. Um, Hopefully I can talk about him more later on. But he's writing about this, you know, time in England. Just a second. Oh, question. Just fine. I was going to say, isn't it in Fox's Book of Martyrs? Yes. Yeah, I don't know that off the top of my head, but that was central. Yeah, because, I mean, that strikes at the core of the gospel, right? I mean, if we would say that Christ has died once for all to atone for sins, I mean, that is, I would stake the claim that the Roman Catholic Church is a false church just on that doctrine alone. I mean, that's not the gospel, right? Yeah, so they, yeah. I mean, that certainly was an issue. Yeah, I mean, you had, like I said, over 300 um, being burned at the stake. But he writes about this, you know, this glorious time in England where the church is being reformed. And notice what he stresses. With us now, uh, where I do now sojourn, there'd be two congregations, two churches. And here's what he's happy about. There's neither crosses nor surpluses. The pastors aren't wearing the Roman Catholic clothes. We're not kneeling at the sacrament, nor the Book of Common Prayer. That was the Church of England's authorized book. Here's how you do worship. And he's saying, nope, we don't have any other behavior but reading the word. All we have is the Bible, the singing of Psalms. By the way, they wouldn't like any instruments because the Bible doesn't say, you know, the New Testament in particular for the church doesn't say anything about instruments. So you have a cappella psalm singing. They're just singing metrical <laughs> psalms and prayer before and after sermon with uh, the catechism. So that's one point. I can see the kids in the other room are crying out. over. They're, they're just, it is idolatry. 
They're just echoing the Roman Catholic idolatry. Number two, an understanding of divine revelation as fixed or constant. They saw that the scriptures were plain. They were infallible. They were inerrant. It was alone sufficient. The word of God was completely all that we need for life and godliness. On the contrary, the Roman Catholic Church and their tradition was not. Tradition was changing, right? Well, just at the whim of the Pope, whatever he wants to do, we can change what we believe. And so they reacted strongly against that. This is not what we want to do. There was no authority uh, for the Puritans outside of God's word. John Knox, he was a Scottish reformer, early Puritan. He said, vain religion and idolatry, I call whatsoever is done in God's service or honor without the express commandment of his own word. If the Bible doesn't say to do it, we ain't going to do it. The Bible has to say this is how we're going to do church. They believe that the word of God was, as Hebrews 4.12 says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. The word of God was the instrument that the Holy Spirit used to bring about conversion and sanctification in his people. As such, they centered everything they did in church around the word. They were a Bible-saturated people. And remember, historically, uh, mid-15th century, so 1400s, 1450s around there, you have the printing press invented, okay? This is huge. The Lord used this for his own glory. You used to, I mean, it wasn't common. I mean, we have tons of books. People did not have books. I mean, if you had two or three books, that was huge, okay? But you have the printing press. All of a sudden, you know, books become cheap, right? You can actually buy books and have your own books. You can actually have your own Bible. And it's around this time, from my understanding, I could be wrong, but I think the 1560 Geneva Bible um, was the first one that actually had chapter and verse numbers, okay? So, I mean, we, we don't even, it's just like, we're just used to that, chapter and verse numbers, you know? Uh, but one of the reasons they added chapter and verse numbers, so when your pastor says, hey, let's open to John chapter 8, you're not like, you know, it's, it's different. It's like, okay, turn to John, and when you see the word, now therefore Jesus, that's where we're going to start. It's like, oh, I got to find that, right? Yeah, it's difficult, right? So that's where chapter and verse number comes from. And so you can actually, you know, know where the pastor is at. Okay. Number two, uh, understand divine revelations, fixed or constant. Number three, high praise for the church on earth. High praise for the church on earth. The Puritans rediscovered the biblical doctrine of the local church. They really focused on the people. The church was not a building. The church was a people who have covenanted themselves together into one body, under pastors, under deacons, and under ultimately Christ as the head of the church. Who's the head of the church? Not the Pope. I mean, think about this. For over a thousand years, Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is saying, I'm in charge of the church. I mean, we're so removed from that. We're just like, well, obviously that's blasphemy. Christ is the head of the church. Well, it wasn't clear to everyone until you start having the Bible. Does that make sense? Like, it's just, sometimes we're so removed historically that we just don't get the gravity um, of these matters that they were debating. They were a people. This is why they often called their uh, physical buildings meeting houses, right? So like we say, it's like, hey, I'm going to church. And we all know it's like, I'm going to this physical location that we're at. Well, they would oftentimes say, it's like, hey, I'm going to the meeting house because they wanted to separate the building from the people, right? They saw the church as a people. And so we would say the same thing as a, as a church today. And that's really originating here with the Puritans wanting to make that point. I put this on your handout because I think it's a really good quote from John Davenport defining the church. What is a church? It's a company of faithful and holy people 
or persons called out of the world to fellowship with Jesus Christ and united in one congregation, right? Focusing on the local church, not universal church. One congregation to him as members to their head, to Christ, and with one another. This is important. When you become a member of Crossway, you're not just identifying that Christ is your head. You're actually saying, hey, this body of people that I'm with, we have a mutual relationship and obligated covenant with one another, right? We have responsibilities towards one another. What does he say? By a holy covenant for mutual fellowship in all such ways of holy worship of God and of the edification of one another. You have a responsibility as a member of this church to build one another up. It's actually not the pastor's job primarily. The pastor's job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to edify and build one another up. And so with the Puritans, you pair their rejection of Roman Catholicism and all their symbols, icons, and images. You pair that with their affirmation of the church being a gospel people, a regenerate community centered around preaching, prayer, and singing psalms. And actually what your physical church building looks like is going to change. So here's a Roman Catholic church in Italy. I don't know when this was built. It's old, okay? Um, It's really old. But I mean... Look, you've got a long, narrow hallway. It's very centered to the front. It's gold. It's beautiful. And we can appreciate, I mean, hey, look, I think it's pretty. And you're not in sin if you think it's pretty, okay? It's nice, okay? Uh, That's what you have going on in Roman Catholicism. Here's kind of a typical Puritan church, uh, what that would look like. I mean, big difference, right? You can just see, like, ooh, gold, shiny, painting of Jesus, a bunch of wood, okay? Like, there's a big difference. And they didn't just do this because they were cheap. They actually did this for theological reasons, right? You even see how how this is far more, like, communal, right? You have people facing each other, right? I think we should bring this back, you know, like the boxes where you have to, like, open a gate to get in. I think think we'd have a lot less people leaving service in the middle of service. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, No, uh, just kidding. But I just find that interesting. That sounds miserable. I would not want to do that. But you have, like, communal, right? Like, see how they're facing one another? But what's central? What are they all facing? Yes, one another, but ultimately the pulpit, right? And the pulpit is high, pointed up. This is what matters, the word of God being preached, right? So this is central to what uh, the Puritans believed. I would just argue how you design your church building communicates something, right? I would argue you can see, just a second, you can see almost the theological difference, right? So, you know, I won't go into that more, but your architecture, your design, your seating, how you build your church says something about you theologically. Yeah, Carol? Why the boxes? I don't know. <laughs> they all have to, to keep them, yeah. Each, 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 each family would get one, you know, so, or, you know, if you've got, you know, a bunch of kids, like the Taylors, you know, the Taylors sit right here, they put all their kids in the back here, and they just, they can't get out. Something like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, you don't have a nursery, you know, where you, you, we don't have a, you don't have a cry room. Um, you know, your kid just cries and you spank him right there in the service. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly the boxes. Good question? Philadelphia, yeah. where our founders went to church, looked a lot like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so this is, I, I'm not sure, this is built early 1700s, I think. I think this is in America. Um, but it's just a good image of what it kind of typically looked like. Um, but yeah. Yeah, so you've got that. All just to say you've got a biblical reprioritization of the church. I mean, it just, I think this strikes at, you know, the American thing to say is, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. 
I'll show you this. You know, the, from the Puritans' point of view, that's just nonsense. Like, what? Like, go to church? That's even the wrong vocabulary. It's like, you don't go to church. You're a part of a church, uh, you know, to the Puritans. That just doesn't make any sense to them. Um, which church are you a part of? Which congregation are you accountable to? Um, you know, if you're not a part of the church, they would say you're not a part of Christ, okay? And I think they're right. I think they are right. You also had a biblical rediscovery of the offices of pastor and deacon. Let me just give you a little historical anecdote here. Thomas Cartwright. Thomas Cartwright. In 1570, under uh, Elizabeth, he becomes professor of divinity at Cambridge. Okay, Cambridge, I already mentioned this. Cambridge and Oxford, those are the two main divinity schools where guys are going uh, to study to become pastors. Okay? So he becomes you know, like the main professor of theology there. Okay? He has already, up until this point, been arguing for, we want a thorough reformation, okay? What's going on in, in uh, mainland Europe with Luther and Calvin? That's what we want. These guys have got it figured out, man. They're done with the Catholics. I want a thorough reformation, okay? So he becomes um, uh, professor of divinity at Cambridge. He starts studying the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts and the pastoral epistles, and he goes, okay, wait a minute. The, the office of bishop as defined by the Church of England, is not in the Bible. We have made this up. You guys have made this up. This is not biblical. The office of bishop is something that's left over from the Roman Catholics. He argues, at this point in the Church of England, bishops are people over churches who are saying, hey, David, you're going to be the pastor of this church. Easton, you are going to be the pastor of this church. You have a bishop over the churches. Does that make sense, right? He starts saying the New Testament, and he's like, wait a minute. Uh, no, the congregation, the church, should say, these are our pastors. They should have to authorize and say, hey, these are our pastors. And rather than it being one, he starts arguing for what later became, becomes uh, known as Presbyterianism, a plurality. Okay? We should actually have a plural number of pastors over um, churches. So this is actually even different than what we would believe. We would argue we should have a plurality of pastors over a local church. Okay, that's what Crossway would believe. Um, and they would believe that too. They would also add, yes, you should have a plurality of elders over that local church. You should also have another council of elders, a plurality of elders over a bunch of local churches. Does that make sense, the difference? Okay. We would say, no, the authority stops here with our local church. They wanted another council. Okay. I disagree with it, but that's Presbyterianism. There's still a lot of solid Presbyterians. Yeah. Well, well, ultimately, yes, but biblical reasons. They would see uh, Acts 15 in the so Jerusalem. Right. Okay. The Presbyterians were Presbyterian because of Acts 15, in large part. They saw, they, they, it wasn't just, yes, added accountability, but they thought it was biblical, too. They thought that, you know, with the Jerusalem Council, you have an Acts 15, you have a bunch of pastors coming together. You have an issue with the church in Jerusalem, I believe. I don't have the passage open in front of me. And so they call a bunch of pastors together with the apostles to say, hey, we need to figure this out. And so they kind of take that as a template for, yes, there should be pastors of local churches, but we also need to have a bunch of pastors over those churches. Does that make sense? So for biblical reasons, yes, one of it was um, accountability. So anyways, Cartwright starts teaching this. He actually loses his job. He loses his professorship because he starts teaching this. He says, hey, I think this is what the Bible teaches. Elizabeth, the Church of England, says, uh-uh, we don't like that. Uh-uh, we ain't losing our power. And so he's done. He's done in 1571. He's not even there, I don't think, a whole year, maybe a year. 
Um, and so he actually loses his job. And so the Puritans came to see um, Episcopalian church government. So those would be the three main types of church government. Episcopalian, the rule of one. Presbyterianism, the rule of a plurality over a bunch of churches. And then congregationalism, where the only authority is just that local church. Does that make sense? Church of England is Episcopalian. The vast majority of Puritans are Presbyterian. A few of them are congregational. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes? So this guy was there for one year. He made it all the way to the top and then lost it all? They hired him to be the top dog. Oh, gotcha. So theologically, he was all squared away. He's reformed. He's, you know, all that. But he starts studying Acts and the pastoral epistles and goes, wait a minute. Church of England, the way you do church government, this ain't biblical, right? So he loses his job uh, because of that. So the Puritans came to see Episcopalian church government as something left over from the Roman Catholics. And we already talked about this. Do the Puritans like the Catholics? No. They want to be completely done with Episcopalianism. I've already talked about the Westminster Assembly a little bit. I want to go back to this. Um, essentially what you have in 1643, okay, in 1642, the English Civil War starts, right? So you've got the Puritans uh, fighting against the king, Parliament fighting against the king, okay, in 1642. A year later, Parliament, they say, hey, the king has fled. I think at this point he's in Scotland. Uh, the king has fled, so the Civil War is going on, but they kind of have the throne. Does that make sense? Parliament's kind of in charge. They're like, hey, you know what? Let's get a bunch of guys together and let's hammer out what we believe and what we actually want. Let's figure out a thorough reformation and let's make it happen because we've got the keys now, man. We got the keys to the car. Let's make this happen, okay? So parliament calls together about 100 Puritan pastors and they tell them, hey, figure out theology. Let's clarify what we believe and how we're going to do church government, okay? That's what's going on here. Um, they get together, they develop the uh, Directory of Public Worship uh, which is soundly reformed. It pretty much replaces uh, the Book of Common Prayer. It outlines, you know, how the church should preach, how we should do communion, singing, stuff like that. Then in 1646, they published the Westminster Confession of Faith. How many of you guys heard of that? Anyone? Westminster Confession of Faith? Okay. Yeah, a lot of you. It's actually still used by a lot of solid Presbyterians today. Um, actually, how many of you guys were at the worship night on Sunday, last Sunday? Okay. We read from the, you know, the Confessions of Faith we read? That was from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was published in 1689. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is really just the Westminster Confession of Faith, but different on baptism, okay? It's really basically the same thing. Um, and so that, that's what happens in 1646. This is what they're debating, okay, is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Actually, they had agreement. They were on the same page theologically, okay? When it comes to the doctrine of salvation, uh, doctrine of, you know, predestination, um, you know, all, all that stuff, you know, the major tenets of theology, they were all on the same page. The one area where they had disagreement was church polity. I mean, it's kind of like, wow, church government, really? But for them, they had biblical convictions. And so what you have actually going on here, this guy here, his name is Thomas Nye. And uh, he's pleading, I don't know who this guy is, but... He's pleading with the rest of the members of the Westminster Assembly. He's a congregationalist, okay? He is, yeah, he, yeah that's right. Yeah, that's our guy, okay? Uh, vast, my, you know, the vast majority of them are Presbyterian. He's in the minority, but he's saying, hey, look, give us some room. Like, we agree with you on absolutely everything except church polity. Can you please just let us do our thing? Does that make sense? Like, he's like, just give us some religious toleration, Okay. And that's actually what happens when Cromwell comes to power. Cromwell gives them 
religious toleration. He allows Presbyterians to do the Presbyterian thing. He allows Congregationalists to do the Congregationalist thing. But here's the problem, okay? And the Presbyterians were actually right on this. Their critique was that if we open the door to saying each local church can do what they want, and there's no higher authority, then a bunch of whack jobs are going to show up, okay? And you're going to get local churches that are teaching crazy stuff. And to be fair, they were right, okay? This is when, have you guys heard of the Quakers? This is really when the Quakers start showing up. The Quakers start quaking, okay? Uh, they really do. They shake, right? And they wait for the Holy Spirit to come, the inner light to come in. The Quakers were messed up, okay, theologically. And even worse than the Quakers, the Baptists show up. This no, no, the Baptists weren't worse. Um, the Quakers actually had serious theological issues. But the Baptists come out of this because there's actually uh, toleration under Cromwell um, for the Baptists to do what they want. Um, all this is to say, they weren't uniform on polity. They weren't uniform. They weren't all of the same opinion on church government. But they saw the heart of the matter the same. Theologically, they were on the same page. They saw the matter as pastoral. Here's the problem. The word of God is not being preached the way it should be. I really like this quote um, from uh, Job Throckmorton. Such a good name. Uh, He's asking, you know, he, he's a rhetorical question. If I were asked, what is the bane of the Church of England, okay, and the Commonwealth? What's the problem with England right now? Answer make. Here's what I would say. The dumb ministry. The dumb ministry. Yea, if I were asked a thousand times, I must say the dumb ministry. And by the way, just historically, I don't think he's saying, like, dumb, like, stupid. I mean, that's actually a kind of 19th, 20th century use of dumb. What he's saying here is dumb in the sense of, like, unable to speak, like, the pastors occupying the pulpits of the Church of England aren't able to preach and teach the Bible and the gospel. So what's the problem? What's at the heart of everything I'm doing, right? This is the problem with the church and with the state of England, the dumb ministry. The pastors aren't preaching the Bible, not preaching the gospel. Does that make sense? That was really at the heart of everything he was doing. There's your first three principles. I didn't even get near where I wanted to get in my slides or in my notes. That's okay. We can pick up on it. Let me just give you... Well, no, you know, we'll, we'll come back and do it next week. I think it's worth it. We can cover the theology pretty, pretty quick. Um, we'll pause there. Any questions? Is this profitable? Is it insightful? Ho- hopefully this clarified some of the historical gaps I left last week. So we have three more points. Sorry I didn't get there. Um, but it's okay, right? We'll, we'll catch up. Yeah, Dennis. Yeah. A nonconformist. Oh, yeah. And like a yeah, good question. Yeah, so those are in some ways used. If, if you guys couldn't hear the question, I'll even say it for the recording. What's the difference between someone who is, you know, decried as a Puritan, someone who is decried as a nonconformist, and someone who is decried as a separatist? Maybe you've heard of some of those um, terms. I would say, in one sense, it always matters how you're defining terms, but they're kind of used interchangeably, okay? Puritan, like I mentioned last week, was a, 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 uh, an insult, okay? Hey, you're just a Puritan. You just want a pure church, you know, blah, okay? Nonconformist would be typically, if I'm not mistaken, typically used after 1662 in the act of uniformity when the Puritans left, over 2,000 pastors left. They did not conform to what the Church of England was saying that you had to do. So they were known as nonconformists. They were not conforming pastors to the Church of England. 
but still operating in the Church of England, or not operating in the Church of England, operating in England, right? So like John Flavel, John Owen, they leave, but they're still operating as pastors in England, non-conforming ones. Separatists would be those that eventually left, like England, right? Like separatists in the sense of like they came to America, right? So oftentimes, you know, like the pilgrims are often called separatists. Um, Again, how those are used, sometimes interchangeably, you know, separatists while you're just separating from the Church of England. So does that kind of help? Yeah. A little bit? Yeah. So you'll see those words a lot in the Puritan literature. Yeah. I just have a really fun fact. Okay. Um, Right Yeah. Emma was talking about that last week. Yeah, okay, well, no, no, no. But tell, tell it for everyone. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Well, there you go. You learn something new every day, right? Um, but yeah, she di- she died for her faith. From everything we understand, she was a solid Protestant, and that she. Uh, yeah, before she was executed, she blindfolded herself, laid down on the, was beheaded for her faith. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, there's so much history and politics here that I just, I just don't know. I'll just be honest. I, there's a lot of things I don't know. Uh, I love history. You read something, it's like, wow, that's amazing. Whoa, I didn't know that. And there are actually some really cool stories I wanted to tell at the end. They'll have to wait for next week. Um, there's fascinating history going on here. Uh, okay, last thing. Book giveaway. I will give this away. This is The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. If you guys know Mark Dever, this is his favorite Puritan paperback. Okay? Um, it's, it's very devotional, like I mentioned. This one's a little bit longer, um, but the pages are short. You know, like you can read a couple pages every night. Um, but I'll just say this. I really do mean this with all my heart. One of the reasons the enduring legacy of the Puritans is because they are so rich. Okay? There's a reason why we're still reading these books Um, you know, what, 400 years later? Um, And it's because they're rich, okay? And so this is one, you have to read it if I give it to you. Who wants it? The Mystery of Providence. Who's going to read it? All right, first hand right here. All right. There's more books. There's more books. Come back. Don't worry. Don't fight, you know. don't, Don't go tearing down other people. All right, you guys are dismissed. Next week we'll pick up on this. I've got three more points. We'll get into the theology, I promise. I won't ramble.